in Houston. I'm John Herter. Tuesday, 15th day of November. Great as always to have you along, everybody. In a nutshell, From the Experts is a virtual networking accelerator helping leaders across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive show format, like a TED Talk with interaction. So what's in it for you, the FT promise? If all goes well, your curiosity sparked, new ideas accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself or someone else solve a problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. The Energy Transition Channel, created in partnership with the Endeavor Institute. Making authentic connections and with stakeholders in the energy transition community has never been more important to your business and essential to reach low carbon sustainable energy future together. Folks, help me welcome our guest expert, Steve Sharp. Steve has grown up in the automotive business. His career began back in his father's repair shop in 1967. Then he moved into the parts side of the industry in 1973. For the last 48 years, he's focused exclusively in the replacement parts segment of the automotive aftermarket. With 33 of those years with Worldwide Trading Company, otherwise known as WorldPack. Senior roles, sales, operation, cataloging, purchasing, product development, marketing, credit, and collections. Well, he knows the business, right? Steve enjoys spending his free time volunteering with Catherine, his wife of 43 years, and hanging out with their three daughters and grandson. Last November, Steve was honored to be inducted into the Import Vehicle Community Hall of Fame. Hey, Steve, really enjoyed our time together on this important topic and really learned so much. Grateful, very grateful to have you on to share some of your insights and kick off this discussion today. Over to you. Well, thanks for making me feel older than I remembered I was. But uh, on that note, hey, uh, thanks to the FTE Network for inviting me today. I'm really, really looking forward to the discussion part of this to get the cross-section of opinions from this audience that we have. Just a couple of footnotes to, to get us started. This is not going to be a data dump with a bunch of prognostications and predictions. I have a few facts and figures to set the tone for the discussion, but I promise you this is not going to be a data dump. So just to start off with, I'd like to say, why did we name this to begin with a a world without gas stations. It's not because people think gas stations are disappearing tomorrow. It's to set the tone for the influence on the energy business, the automotive business, with the adoption of EVs. It's it's really, really that simple. Um, I'm, I'm actually reminded of something that, um, it's, a, it's a saying from Confucius about, tell me, I'll forget, show me I might remember, involve me and I'll understand. That's what today is all about. It's about involvement. It's about participation. It's about creating understanding for this change that's taking place to a number of different industries. So if gas stations are not disappearing tomorrow, why do we need to prepare today? It's really simple. EVs are picking up momentum. I'll give you a first statistic of the day. In California, the Tesla Model 3 and Model Y are the top two selling models in the state. Tesla is second in overall sales only to Toyota in the state. And to show you the momentum that EVs have in California, this year, there'll be about 18% of new car sales will be 
EVs. That's up from 12% in 2021. It's up from 8% in 2020. So that's a real momentum change. It's, it's important that everybody sees that. California is only one state. That's definitely true. But California sets the tone typically for both all things automotive and all things environmental and EVs touch both of those. So it's, it's important to remember that. So why are EVs becoming more popular? I see it in two buckets. I see one is attitudinal amongst consumers. And I also see some influence behind the decisions of the consumer. So, you know, there's a whole roster you guys can read. It's, it's attitudes about renewable energy, greenhouse gases, concerns about global warming. There's more and more statistics coming out that consumers believe that EVs are simply lower to operate. The maintenance is more predictable. And I wouldn't overlook the convenience factor. You plug your car in when you go home. That's a lot different experience than hitting the filling station every week or whatever it is you do to do your compute uh, your commute. So that's that's kind of the attitudinal piece. But there is an influential piece. And, and that is the government is regulating things. In the state of California, again, to use that as an example, the governor here has already decided that all cars by 2035 need to be zero emission vehicles. It's not the only state that's professing that. New York is talking about adopting something very, very similar by the end of the year. And again, I realize it's California centric, but remember they set the tone historically, if you look at that. I think the other thing to think about California, just to kind of uh, emphasize how much of a passion this is of our governor here, it's not just automobiles. Beginning in 2024, gas-powered lawnmowers, leaf blowers, and weed eaters will be outlawed. The state has already set aside millions of dollars to help people convert their gas-powered uh, lawn business to electric. I'm sorry to smile at that, but it's, it's kind of funny to me. Uh, the other thing to think about is the car companies have been very open about their professions and commitments to electric vehicles. Virtually every car company has made some type of statement about their commitment to going to electric-only platforms. Depending upon where it is in the world and depending on how much car maker it is, it varies. Most car makers are trying to get there between 2030 and 2040. 2035 seems to be a common denominator. I actually read an article a couple of days ago that Jag said, Jaguar said they'll get there by 2026. Not the largest car company here in North America to be true, but it's setting a tone. And then finally, you know, there isn't a state in the country that doesn't have some kind of a incentive for the adoption of electric vehicles. So, you know, putting that part aside, the big question that I'm normally asked whenever the subject matter comes up is, when is the tipping point? When is electric vehicle going to affect what it is that I do? So um, if you want to entertain yourself, just Google something to that effect, and you're going to find the wild west of answers. You're going to find everything from it's never going to happen. It's a fad. It will go back. You know, we'll find some other solution to it's imminent demises tomorrow. So let me tell you about a very interesting article that I read a couple of days ago on the subject matter that was published earlier this year. It goes like this. This article said that by 2025, 
50% of all new car sales would be EVs. By 2030, one third of all vehicles on the road would be EVs. And by 2040, it'd be 100% on the road EVs. That seems aggressive to me. And, and, and let me tell you why that seems aggressive to me. Gasoline burning, diesel burning, internal combustion motor vehicles have a really, really long tail. There's about 285 million of them on the road today. And the scrappage rate is about five to 6%. As, as a matter of fact, in this last year's statistics said, we scrapped somewhere between 12 and 15 million cars that were just taken off the road. I think the way to think about the riddle is the following. You've got one end where cars are disappearing and you've got another end where EVs are entering. So you're gonna have kind of this, this long tail is gonna be kind of a transition over time. It can accelerate. I mean, there's things that can accelerate it. The price of fuel is always a hot button. Additional government regulations could certainly speed things up. But the truth of the matter is, it's going to take a little while to get there. So coming back to the, when is the tipping point? Here's how I see it, the tipping point. It's dependent upon two things. The first thing is, what you consider the tipping point as an organization or individual, because there's two tipping points. One is my product is completely obsolete. I can't sell it to anybody. Another tipping point is the chemical makeup of the fleet on the road has changed to the point where I can't grow my business. And some people ride the horse until it's dead. And some people say, hey, it's time to get off the horse before it's dead. So the tipping point depends on how you view it for your own personal circumstance. Having said that, there's other factors to consider. So as an example, if you're the manufacturer of wiper blades, you actually may not have a tipping point. You're probably going to be okay. On the other hand, if you're the producer of internal engine parts for gas-burning vehicles, you may have already be experiencing your tipping point as car makers are having more of a demand on electric components and less on internal combustion components. If you're an aftermarket provider, that's the world that I come from, you take the lead from the car makers. You can't sell products for things they don't sell. So you have to watch the EVs. You have to be mindful of the fact that the number one repair job today for an internal combustion car is oil, oil filter and air filter. Electric vehicle doesn't have any of that. So doesn't mean you're, you're, you're isolated or you're insulated, I should say, but you have to be mindful of what's going on. And then I think the thing is, if you're in the fuel business, the energy business, I think you have a couple of changes. Or challenges, sorry about that. And that is, First, you've had to deal with the fact that cars get better mileage all along. So there's, it's, it's almost like I heard somebody say there's a conspiracy to get people to use less of my product, which I thought was a, a very, very interesting observation as it relates to gasoline stations. But, but the other is um, you're, you're simply dealing with the fact that with each EV that's sold, it's a customer you don't have in the future. And, and I think that's really the way to think about today's discussion and riddle and sharing of thoughts is that it's just really, really simple. 
if you're in the energy business, the automobile, automobile business, anything that touches an, an automobile, every EV that's sold, if you don't have a product or service that can meet that demand, you don't have a customer in the future. That's just, I know that sounds very stark. It's the reality. So, you know, so John, those are a few facts, figures to get the things going. I don't want this to turn into a monologue. So uh, some opening thoughts. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, when we were talking, we came up with a few questions. I just launched this poll. And um, uh, so if you guys would all take a look at it uh, and we can start stepping through that. So the way we work the show is after our guest expert has shared his comments and we roll into the conversation with you guys. And uh, it's pretty simple. You can raise your hand and we'll answer your question. You can drop it into the uh, chat uh, or you can just express yourself verbally uh, and say, hey, I, I want to I contribute. But as we do that, uh, if you just introduce yourself, you know, your name and who you're with, that'd be great. And also, if I call on you or if uh, Steve calls on you and you want to pass, that's okay. You can say pass. No big deal. Uh, Gus, would you drop the uh, first question that actually came into the um, our, our first question, which is, Okay, after everything Steve has said, well, what are you guys out there? What is your organization doing to prepare for this world uh, without gas stations? So that's the question I'd like to, to start with. And uh, we're about, uh, we're still working our way through the poll. Would somebody like to uh, open the floor and uh, start the conversation based on what you've heard? Uh, Mario, do you have anything you'd like to offer? Uh, sure, John. Um, yeah, it's um, I'm Mario Recchia of uh, the, the Recchia Group. Uh, I do consulting. Uh, have been a colleague of Steve Sharp, so we go back a long way, also. But so I work with a lot of um, organizations, distributors, manufacturers, and uh, yeah, I, I think you know the challenges going forward are are, are there. But I, I'm I'm probably as much as I would agree with Steve. They're probably you know some years out there. But you know, if you look at some of the stats out uh, in, in the marketplace right now, if you look at uh, you know breaks and tune-ups, things like that, th those things are going to be affected. I say probably in the next ten years or so. But as Steve has mentioned earlier, you know, two hundred eighty-seven million vehicles, average age revealed twelve years plus. Um, there are going to be plenty of ICE vehicles out there that need to be serviced for the foreseeable future, but. There are opportunities for distributors, manufacturers out there with EVs uh, that uh, I think that, uh, you know, if they see those opportunities and take advantage of them, I, I'll throw one idea out there. I may be digressing a little bit here, John, but reel me in if you need to. But, uh, you know, there are going to be quite a few charging stations out there, EV charging stations. Uh, you know, looking at a distributor that has, you know, a fleet of vehicles, they have image, they have uh, physical locations, uh, and maybe an opportunity for them to service those EV charging stations. So I think opportunities like that, you know, thinking outside the box, right. uh, you know, training, training technicians, training your, your customers is going to be pivotal going forward. So things like that. Um, I think looking at opportunities are going to be uh, they're going to be there for the taking for those who are willing to see that and to make that investment up front. Yeah. Thank you, Mario. So question dropped in by Eric. Is there a transition path where gas stations migrate to charging stations? Uh, Steve, what's your take? 
Well, there's always a path to evolve. Uh, I think it comes down to how an organization sees itself. Does it see it as, as an example, just to make a little bit of a comparison, does it see itself as a producer of gas or does it see itself as a, a supplier of energy? I would say how they view themselves. Do they view themselves as a solution rather than a product is probably a better way to state that. I also think that we have to think about the transition path from a, a competitive perspective. And, and what I mean by that is today, a, a, a gas station fill up is, let's call it for discussional purposes, a 10 or 15 minute exercise, just for whatever that's worth. Well, you got two things on the charging side of things that's going to change that dynamic, in my opinion. And that is one, you can charge your car at home. Refueling your car has become a do-it-yourselfer item, for lack of a better term. I think the other thing that we have to think about when evolving from today's filling station is that who can compete with you can change. A restaurant can compete with you. <laughs> a parking lot can compete with you. They don't have to drill holes in the ground and put tanks in and all that other stuff. So it doesn't mean that it can't be done. I think over time, the business model will have to be revisited in some form or fashion. There's always going to be people out traveling on the roadway. You know, there's a very good infrastructure. I have to live in California. There's a pretty good infrastructure of charging stations up and down the state so you can get around. But I think the traditional gas station over time will have to revisit um, its value proposition. That's my opinion. Yeah, I got it. So that uh, if you, you can look at the poll results, folks, um, uh, the, the question is uh, the company's greatest concern regarding the disappearance of internal combustion engines. Uh, most of the folks are saying, yeah, we've already understand this and we've, we've uh, taken that consideration. But about a third are saying, well, we're still working on it. And then uh, about 25% is saying it doesn't really affect us at all. Um, Rob Merwin just came in. He says uh, several municipalities in California just announced that they've placed a cap on any new gas stations. Uh, and it has a municipality, as has a municipality in Colorado. So again, regulations coming into play there. Coming into play. And he, so we've got folks here from uh, different sides of the business. Love to hear your perspectives, uh, your questions. Um, you know, whether you're coming from the alternative fuels, I know we've got some folks from Venture Capital Angel Investing here. We'd love to hear from you. Um, the second question here says, uh, um, types of questions that you're being asked by the investment community. So Vinny, I see, and I'm, I'm glad that you came. I know you're in the investment community. Um, you know, 25% of them are saying that uh, they've already taken care of it. Uh, about 40% are saying that they're dealing with this now. And about 40% are saying, well, they're not uh, not really something they're dealing with right now. Um, Vinny, are you there? What's, what's your take uh, or anybody else from the investment community on uh, how this is changing the way you're thinking of things? Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, got you. Thanks, Vinny. Let me get my, uh, my video on here. Yeah, so... Basically, I come from um, a space where we're working on cloud kitchens and ghost kitchens and how it's basically going to transform um, the quick service restaurant uh, model, uh, basically because it you know, lowers your labor costs and um, you know, the overall footprint needed to run that type of model is dramatically reduced. So we foresee a lot of these gas stations transitioning to 
um, a combination of ghost kitchens slash, you know, charging stations. And we're already starting to see that, um, you know, on a small scale, but that's something that could be scalable once we transition from the traditional, you know, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, uh, traditional fuel, you know, type business. So, uh, any feedback on that, Steve? Yeah, I think, um, when I think about transition, um, it, it always makes me think about competition, um, as abstract as that might sound to some, and, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you why. A company that's transitioning has to straddle a couple of different lines, right? They have to, they have to straddle the world they're in today and get to the other side. Not every competitor entering this realm is going to have to deal with that. Tesla is a great example of the adage we used to use in Mario when we worked together. The adage we used in our company was that the competition of today is not the competition of tomorrow. And if you take a look at, there's other car companies out there, we don't talk about them that much, but there's Rivian, there's Lucid, there's Polestar. There's a bunch of EV people coming into the space. They're not gonna have to evolve. They're just gonna have to beat everybody to the punch. So again, it doesn't mean that companies can't evolve. This is not a doom and gloom story. It's just that the pathway to the ultimate end game, I think is different depending upon where you are in your overall corporate journey. That's kind of John, the way I see it. Right. Hey, Robert, I, uh, it's good to see you. Uh, from the real estate side and from uh, your uh, energy um, dealings that we've talked about before, is there anything that uh, you're seeing there? Well, for me, um, the I really am looking forward to, well, let me start it by saying this. I believe in disruptive industries. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean, they cause us to look for a change. And someone earlier talked about being able to, how it creates new uh, opportunities. And I recognize that it does create, it does eliminate some opportunities. So uh, Steve, what you were talking about with the no oil changes and no filters, no the oil, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. But then somebody also talked about, well, we need technicians to manage these charging stations as an example. And it's a, a field that I've been looking to get into. Um, and I, you know, this is maybe a conversation for another time, but uh, I'm, it seems to be more of a, you got to know somebody to really kind of get involved in the in that field. And I've been struggling to get a foothold in that field because I don't have the EV charging experience, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that it is going to, um, I believe that it could be a benefit as a real estate professional, you know, I am out there, and I, I say this from the mindset of uh, the climate, because I'll put 300 miles on my vehicle easily in a day, in some cases. And if I'm in a city where we have almost 10,000 realtors, and not everybody's driving like me, I mean, that's one aspect, I, I recognize that. But I just have to think about that a little bit, and I think about the climate 
from that perspective. And then that's what helps me to say, okay, let me endure this change. It is mm -hmm. going to be some adjustments. Uh, my wife drives a, an EV. Thanks, Robert. Robert, uh, yeah. thank you very much. Can we, yeah. uh, with a sense of time, we're going to you know, kind of share the airwaves. I got so, you. no problem. Let's continue the conversation. Thanks for that. So, so Rodney, you still on the line? What about from your perspective? What are you seeing out there? Robert just shared what he's thinking. What are you seeing? Rodney? As Rodney's coming. It took me forward, a while to hit that button. There you go. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think Steve's comments earlier are very appropriate. And uh, it almost sets the stage for California being the petri dish for the evolution of the electrical vehicle, uh, even though uh, we're nowhere near there uh, with infrastructure or other issues uh, to, to cascade into the electric vehicle thing in a very short period of time. But I think it's important that both state and national trade associations bring these issues forward to their memberships. Uh, to be one of the catalysts so people begin to understand from their business planning, where do they fit in this transition to uh, electri electrification. So I think it's an important role for trade associations. And uh, I think they're responsible for bringing additional information to the industry on these transitions. Got it. Thanks. We've got a, uh, it looks like a question from Daniel. Uh, Hanson, he's talking about uh, in his sector, aftermarket auto parts, what is uh, the serviceability of EVs outside of wear parts? He's concerned about that, Steve. Yeah, I'll take a shot at that. Hey, Dan, thanks for joining us today. Um, so for those that may not be totally familiar with, it's it's not just the propulsion or the fuel or the energy that's a big difference between electric vehicles and gas vehicles, um, the drivetrain of an electric vehicle has significantly less parts on it. Um, I read a couple of different articles from different manufacturers. Uh, General Motors was very, very proud of the fact that the Volt only had about, uh, had less than 30 pieces on it. Uh, Tesla professes to have less than 20. Uh, I think it uh, depends a little bit on, on which drivetrain it is. So over time, I think two things will happen. I'm going to try to connect this question with, uh, with Robert's commentary, which I thought was really, really good. There's no question that things like brakes and I mentioned wiper blades and axles will probably become, you know, ultimately the power has to be transferred to the wheels. Those typically have moving parts. They typically wear out, so forth and so on. Um, the opportunity I think is the following, and that is, I think over time, a technician might look more like an electrician or a mathematician than he does a mechanic, if you'll let me use that old school term, because they're going to have to know a whole lot of stuff. I mean, not, not to get too macabre here, but doing something wrong in an electric vehicle will kill you. So there's going to have to be a high level of training. There's going to have to be a high level of of uh, vigilance as it relates to making sure we have people to service the cars. Having said that, um, you would think because of that, 
we might be in a circumstance where the service intervals are longer, but the maintenance is more expensive so that the repair sector remains whole. You know, this is not the first time the industry's gone through this kind of change. You know, when I broke into the business, you did a tune-up, you know, plugs, points, condenser, rotor, cap, about every 12,000 miles. Now cars, from a drivability perspective, unless they have some kind of failure, 90,000 miles between interval is not at all unusual. The difference is, years ago, a tune-up was less than 100 bucks, and a, a regular maintenance today might be a, uh, you know, might be a couple thousand bucks, depending upon what you're driving. But I think, Daniel, the question to your question, uh, your, your, the answer to your question is, I don't know that we know everything yet about what kind of repairs are going to be out there for electric vehicles. I do know from a survey perspective, and Rodney, coming back to your point about what an association can do, there is survey information that says an electrical vehicle owner is more likely to take their car back to the dealer today just because of knowledge, just because of expertise. And ultimately, like the aftermarket is done forever in a day, it's going to have to get the word out that, hey, we can do it too. Right. Thanks for that. Uh, Kevin, do you want to just pipe up and share your question real quick? Kevin Mullen. Hi, I, I didn't really have a question. I was just kind of commenting that, uh, that um, you know, for the proliferation of EVs to really succeed, um, it, it's a system thing, right? It's like we, we need to make charging accessible. We need to make roadside service possible. You know, we, we have some systematic limitations right now. And it just occurred to me that it's a very similar problem to what we had when we were trying to advance, um, you know, how well we use software, and uh, and we were facing these challenges um, in in software talking to each other, and so there was this kind of global, um, it kind of open source started it, and and um, and there was a global effort to create common APIs. Right, and that allowed all software to talk to each other a lot easier uh, through these common ways of connecting the data and, and software was using. And I think that instead, I think that historically, you know, and it's starting to change, um, but I think we're gonna win the battle when, um, you know, historically, it maybe was about trying to bottleneck the technology and being the dominant technology. And then maybe as our philosophy shifts towards having flexibility in, in the interconnectivity or, or the kind of crossover, um, you know, service and so forth that can happen and parts and, and whatnot. Once we create commonality or flexibility, um, you know, that's when it can really take off because people won't be at risk for, for using their EV and driving across, you know, Canada or the US, you know, they're gonna feel safe doing it. There's, right now, that's probably not true. Thanks for that, Kevin, I appreciate it. Um, just to close our poll down, the last question, uh, it looks like 26% uh, say that uh, we talk about the EV every week, occasionally, 58 to 60% say it's, you know, it impacts our clients' markets. So we talk about it occasionally. 
And uh, then about 15% say, no, we don't really talk about it at all. And that was the last question on the poll. Thank you for your participation on that. We had a question in from uh, Daniel Hansen. He says, well, I think from his perspective, the dealership is going to dominate the repair sector in the near term, but confident that when we can identify the service opportunity and help facilitate training to the independent service dealer, the aftermarket will have the ability to adapt. So adapt or die, right, Steve? Yeah, I, I think he's uh, he's spot on. I, I actually wrote an article for uh, Rob's Rob's publication. I'll, I'll publish it afterwards, John, if people can see it. Um, the, the, the automotive business, not, not only is it far reaching in our overall economy, not only in terms of importance, but you know, in production, productivity. Um, the truth of the matter is it's, it's amazingly resilient. You know, I can tell you right now that if you think about um, 280 million cars on the road, and let's just say for discussional purposes, all 280 million of those were electric. The dealer network cannot service those. And I also know from other survey information that nothing turns a customer off more than not being able to get their car serviced. Even if they take their car to an aftermarket provider, if something goes wrong, they're likely to blame the car maker. So over years, the car makers have become more in tune with ownership experience now, now, don't get me wrong, Rodney can tell you seven ways to Sunday that it doesn't necessarily mean that they turn over all the keys willingly to the aftermarket. They still would like to have a captive audience. The truth of the matter is Dan, Dan is right. It, this is not gonna be a captive audience. The, the aftermarket will go on. They'll figure out what to do. There'll be things that are more than viable from a, a business model perspective, but yeah, there'll be some adaptation. There's no question about it. Um, Yvonne, could you talk a little bit from your perspective on the supply chain and what you're seeing, <clears throat> what you're seeing out there, please? You don't mind sharing? Yvonne, are you still with us? If not, uh, somebody can uh, step in and uh, bring forward another question, or you can add it into the chat. Um, you know, another good thing for us to do, Steve, is to visualize what what are you know companies actually doing to prepare for the change once they understand it's coming. What what are you doing with companies today to help them through that process? I'll, I'll give you two kind of things to think about as it relates to transition, and um, one is I think pragmatic <laughs> or practical, and and one is cute in my mind. So when I when I heard Kevin talking about apps and software and so forth and so on, M Mario sent me a couple of weeks ago, a very interesting app from a company called Borla. Now for, for those that don't know that name, Borla is in the high performance exhaust and intake business. They have made an app that will make a electric vehicle sound like the throatiest racing V8 you've ever heard. <laughs> If uh, it's really quite interesting, maybe John, we could publish that link afterwards too. It's very, very interesting. That that's kind of the the, the fun side of it. I think the pragmatic side, the the most interesting story that I heard was when Henry Ford was trying to get mass production going. He realized he needed component manufacturers that could keep up with his vision. 
And, and Rodney, I think you and I were at the same presentation where somebody said Henry Ford went to somebody who was producing horse blankets and said, look, you, you guys are soon to be gone. Maybe you can make gaskets for my engines. So you, you know, Rodney, you, I see you're nodding your head, right? So my point is, and it really does come back to Robert's point, there's opportunity out there. You have to find it, you have to see it, you have to envision the future and what it might be for what it is that you can do from a capability perspective. Excellent. So Mertuza, if you can hear us, I mean, what are you, what are you thinking from Syzygy's perspective uh, and how you know, the, this might impact your business? Hi, thanks, John. Um, you know, I, I, I attended this more for sort of personal interest and wanting to understand the ecosystem around electric vehicles versus ICE a little bit more. I think for Syzygy's business, um, it can definitely impact us in that, you know, we are trying to electrify chemical manufacturing. Obviously, a big part of chemical manufacturing is fuels. So if, you know, EV vehicles uh, can cannibalize some of the demand for, you know, gasoline, diesel, maybe even aviation fuels with some of the startups that are out there, that'll in turn sort of, you know, uh, reduce the market size for what we can sort of go after. Uh, but beyond that, I haven't put too much uh, thought into that. Steve, anything from you, from his comments? A uh, question came in, is this change that you're talking about really any different than uh, other shifts in consumer habits? What's your take on that? Yeah, I would say that um, as it relates to the fuel part of the equation, I see it as a giant sea change because it turns the fueling of the vehicle into a do-it-yourselfer component. That's never really happened before. Um, at least, I don't think that's ever happened before uh, with, as it relates to fuel. I think the other thing when I, when I think about this is, so I, I grew up, my father was a mobile oil dealer for about 25 years. So I grew up in the gas business and specifically in 1973 and 1978, when we had gas shortages, embargoes and all that stuff, that's when things really changed with purchasing habits. Car owners for the first time started looking at vehicles different because of the cost of fuel. They downsized the vehicles. They were looking for things that were more um, efficient. Uh, I think the other thing was uh, the the big three in Detroit had some really difficult times in the late 60s and early 70s adopting their vehicles to some pretty onerous, from a timeline perspective, emission circumstances from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And people started buying small cars because of fuel efficiency and quality levels. The truth of the matter is there was a concern about quality that, that can't, be, can't be ignored. This is quite different. I think there's an emotional component to an electrical vehicle purchase. I'm doing something good. Yes, there's a cost piece and all that stuff, but I do get a sense that from, in, in my neighborhood, I just to put it in perspective, Teslas are ubiquitous here in California. They're everywhere. You talk to a Tesla owner, talk to an EV owner, and they will tell you they think they're doing something good for the environment. So there's, a, I think, a different emotional kind of a, attachment to it. So... You know, it, it's uh, 
I think that makes it quite different. On the long term, on the long haul, on the repair side of things, the fact that there's just less componentries on the cars will have some impact, you know. That I, I see those as kind of being fuel or energy, drivetrain. I think I think those are kind of the big bookends there. Okay, thanks. So we're really up against the time. Any last comments? Uh, looks like OTA over the air updates. OEV is a real issue to the aftermarket now and in the future is what Mario contributes. If anybody has anything, last thing they would like to add to Steve, Steve, if you could then uh, consider, you know, the takeaways that you leave, the, the, in summary, your last word for the group here. Yeah, I would say it really, really simply. After having been associated at the vehicle business for more than 50 years, there's a couple of things I think everybody should think about. The very first thing, if I was in your shoes, is I try to figure out how my product fits in today's market and if it fits in the future market and how as best as I can. Number two is I would try to assess, do I have an organization where change can actually take place? Is what we do so institutionalized that we can't change? Or do I have an environment where things can take place? And it's not just about, can I implement change? Environments that have change-oriented environments, the change come from within. They come from the bottom up, not from the top down. Those are typically more powerful. And then finally, John, slow transitions happen more rapidly than we think they do. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at what happened with import cars in this country where They've essentially put the big three out of the passenger car business. Ask anybody in Detroit how quickly they happened. They'll tell you it happened overnight. So that's my final word. Okay, cool. Thanks, Steve. To that, to that point, Steve, if anybody had the opportunity to attend Apex this year in Las Vegas, you can see the supplier community is well aware of this transition to electrical vehicles. Excellent. Amazing that what they had on the floor at that trade show. Thank you. Folks, how was the discussion today? And would you like to go even deeper on the subject? Please take the 30 second chat, sorry, the 30 second survey that's being dropped in the chat right now and let us know. Helps us to continue to improve our service. So today's post show notes with everybody's contact info and uh, the expert resources that Steve will leave behind will hit your mailbox a little later today. Be sure, take the time to connect with each other help each other get to the opportunity faster. Well, next up on the Energy Transition Channel, our 2023 season begins January 25th with the global hydrogen expert, Rick Butel from Bloom Energy. He'll be discussing how they are unlocking and scaling the power of hydrogen, well, the sustainable pathway to zero carbon. Learn more and register at our website at ft.network. Folks, we're out of time. Thank you again, Steve, very much. Thank you and for having me. Absolutely. And I want to thank all of you for taking time to connect and learn on the Energy Transition channel. We will see you next time. Have a great rest of the week.